Well, good morning again. Thought I'd, you, some of you are probably wondering, who's that guy on stage? I don't recognize that guy at all. His name's Devin. There you go. <laughs> good, friend's a, good friend of David's. Uh, we just borrowed him for the morning. He's, 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 he's got a home, but uh, he's just coming to help out. He's been wanting to come over for a while and kind of check things out, check on David, make sure he's uh, doing what he ought to be doing, and, and uh, so that's exciting. Um, and then Cody's missing. Our drummer, Cody, has gone today because uh, he's sick this morning. So he just started a new job this last week, so if you lift him up and his family in your prayers, that would be a big deal because uh, if you just start a new job and then you get sick at the front end of that, it can be very detrimental to your employment. So um, please uh, make sure, if you're, if you're able, if you remember, to, to pray for him this morning, that would be great. Um, last thing that, that I'll mention before we officially dive into God's Word. Uh, donuts and things like that, in case you ever wondered, we've never told you these kinds of things. Uh, I think it costs uh, for the donuts, well, I know it costs $29.80 um, each week for the donuts, just so you know. Um, and there's a little can out there. So if anybody's ever like, man, it would be awesome if we had donuts every week. Yes, it would. And if there is enough money in that can for donuts to happen every week, by golly gosh, it might happen. So just keep that in mind, all right? Just keep that in mind. We would love to, to provide that. It's so much fun to just sit around, uh, gather together, and, and break bread. <laughs> is that bread? I don't know. It's delicious bread, so whatever. Um, we, we really, really enjoy it. Yeah, we had monkey bread today, thanks to Mary Lou Britton. So thank you for bringing that in, Mary Lou. Um, we're excited about eating that as well. Let's go to the Lord. In prayer. Father God, as we dive into your words, we consider this last week of your son's life, and, and we can't cover every element of it for sure, but Father, what's revealed to us in your word, there's so many distinct things, and I pray that we can understand, that we can identify with some of those things. We can imagine what it might be like to be a part of those events as they unfolded before their eyes with no one except Jesus himself knowing what all was about to happen. Father, as we prepare our hearts, our minds, our souls, our lives, for this Easter season and the opportunity we have to share your love with those around us that do not know you, do not know the significance of this holiday and the eternity-changing nature of it. I pray that you give us the words and the strength and the courage to share that with them this season. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been determined, determined to do something? I mean, one of those like, there is nothing going to stop me from doing this, maybe short of God himself, right? Nothing is going to prevent me from doing this. If you have, uh, what was it? What was it that you were so determined to do? Maybe it was asking that girl out, guys, or maybe asking her to marry you even. Yikes. What'd she say? I don't know. Uh, maybe it was getting that job. Maybe you remember it was getting that student. Maybe you were in the military. It had something to do with those things. Maybe it was taking that trip. Maybe it was finishing that degree. What was it? What was it? For me, it was that degree. Let me explain a little bit. I began graduate school in the fall of 2009. It wasn't a requirement. It wasn't anything anyone was making me do. When I entered into the world of ministry full-time, I told the eldership I did not have a degree in that area um, at that moment in time, and I told them, I said, as soon as the opportunity arises, I would love to begin pursuing a degree in, in some type of theology, some type of religion, something along that nature. And it was a great opportunity that became available to me. The, there was a school that was offering a quote-unquote free, you've had one of those before, trial course. They just wanted to suck you in and get you started. If it was good enough, then of course you would sign up for the rest of the program. And it was one of those programs where if you wanted to, in a short 18 months, you could be a full-time student the whole time and get everything done in just 18 months. Well, for several reasons. Number one, because my degree was not in a Bible area to begin with. I had a lot of extra prerequisites to take. So instead of just the traditional number of hours, I had a whole bunch of extras, and that really wasn't going to be an option anyway. 
in my life. There was also another option, a really flexible option. They literally said, uh, honestly, we don't care how long you take. Take as long as you need to, because they just <laughs> want your money. So take as long as you need to to complete this program. And so that was definitely the route that we chose. I, after a couple of years of being a part of that, God provided an awesome opportunity for me. Through some scholarship money, I was, in theory, going to be able to go to school full-time for about three semesters um, and finish up. Now, that was to go to school full-time while having a full-time job as a youth minister, while being a full-time husband and father, and oh yes, also coaching basketball, something that I loved to do at the time. And hopefully, hopefully be able to finish that up in just the short three semesters. It was an incredible opportunity that we had that summer going into the fall, and we were looking forward to it. It was going to be a challenge for sure, but what an opportunity. And then July came, nothing unusual, went to the dentist like uh, I would do every year. Um, my dentist still kind of old school. Your dentist probably doesn't do this anymore, but takes your blood pressure before you get your dental work done, because as you know, if you have high blood pressure, dental work can be a very traumatic thing. So, um, they took my blood pressure. It was actually a really funny scenario. The, the nurse came in, if you will, the dental hygienist came in, took my blood pressure with their digital thing once, took it again, left, came back with the old sphygmometer. Those of you that know what that actually is. Took it again, kind of scratched her head, left. Did you know you have kind of high blood pressure? I was like, no, no, no clue. You know, they never actually told me what it was. They never, told, I, they never told me, they never told my wife what it was. However, the dentist and my father were very good friends, so the dentist did tell my father. He told on me. I don't know what, what's that. I'm, I don't even know how I was at the time. He told on me for having high blood pressure. Unfortunately, it was seriously high, and my dad immediately got me in to see a nephrologist, a kidney doctor, who, if you don't know, your kidneys help regulate your blood pressure, if you aren't aware of that. And so I proceeded to go in and see him. After some blood work, uh, some other tests, and a very painful ultrasound. This was not the pregnancy ultrasound, um, not, on, not on my sides. Uh, it hurt quite a bit uh, to do that. We went in. We found out that, yes, indeed, I did have high blood pressure. That could have caused the issue, or it could have been a problem with my kidneys. Whichever one happened first, we don't know. But my kidneys were quickly failing. I was already in stage three of kidney disease at that point in time. Needless to say, um, that's not exactly what we were looking to do in that moment. There was medicine to help control the high blood pressure, and they, they hoped that would work. Uh, my, my nephrologist, excellent, awesome guy, uh, hoped that that would work to sustain the kidneys, at least for a while, but a transplant was inevitable. Now, that's not exactly the news you're looking for at that phase of life, when there's nothing at all wrong with you that you know of, at least. So what do you do? What do you do with that information, Right? The kids were getting ready to head back to school. This was in July. They go back at the end of July. Youth group was about to kick off, being a youth pastor. Later that fall, basketball would kick in. And oh yeah, by the way, I had just enrolled to become a full-time grad student that fall. What do you do? Option one, well, you could pack it in. You know what? Life is short. We've all begun to realize that, haven't we, at this point in time? And we don't know what to expect. We don't know how long the medicine would continue to work before my entire life would effectively change as a result of a transplant. Or do you just press on? Had somehow God put all these pieces of the puzzle, this really odd-shaped puzzle, um, all together through his hand, and then maybe I should make the most of this opportunity? Honestly, could I even handle everything that I was about to undertake? Well, Chris and I definitely both shed some tears after that realization. And at the end of it, we decided to go ahead and, and as Larry would say, get her done. Some of you know who I'm talking about. 
And God allowed me to do just that. I was able to actually finish all the courses by the fall of 2012 and graduate in the spring of 2013. God had a plan. I had a choice. Was I going to fix my eyes on Him or on my situation? It was really one of those faith over fear kind of opportunities. It was a test. I do believe God would probably have honored either way, but I really think the test was for me in that moment. Here's what I learned, very simply, to trust God. I learned to trust God. Just do it, even when it doesn't make a lick of sense. Because here's the thing. One of the biggest concerns that my wife and I had going into full-time graduate school was this. Yeah, that costs money, right? Yeah, there were some scholarship opportunities, and that was cool, but we definitely did not have the money to be a full-time graduate student. I shared with you those incredible scholarship opportunities, but it was still a major concern for our budget and our lives. We weren't going to go into debt and take out loans and things like that to do this, so God simply did this. He said, Chris, do you trust me? Do you trust me with your health? That's a hard one. Do you trust me with your job? That's a hard one. With your family? Do you trust me with your studies? If you do, Chris, I will provide. Now, some might say, well, God didn't verbally say that to you. You know what? He didn't. Or did he? <laughs> if you spend some time in this book, you'll learn that God has a lot to say to you. And it applies directly to you, so don't discard what that book has to say. At the end of this, not only did I complete the degree, still have a wife, my kids still liked me, yay, I got a new coaching job, way better than the old coaching job at a new school with an amazing group of young ladies who two years later ended up at Bankers Life Fieldhouse at the state finals. Never even pursued those jobs before, it kind of found me. But maybe the most godlike thing of all was this, at the end of it, I got a bill from Cincinnati Christian University. And the bill stated that Cincinnati Christian University owed me $400. I never paid a dime. That's how God does work. That is the way he works. I wish we could trust him all the time. And just so you know, that degree is one of the very reasons why I get to stand before you today here. It was all part of his plan. It was all part of his plan. There's no way I could have seen it. There's no way I could have prepared it. Couldn't have planned it out. Couldn't have, no, couldn't even dream it. But that's how God works. Today we're going to begin this series. It's, it's just a short four-week series. One week to live. One week to live. If you had one week left to live, what would you be determined to do? I know as I wrote that sentence, my mind began to wonder if somehow we could know that we only had one week to live and we still had all of our faculties about us and we could still go and do what we wanted to do, what would it be? For me personally, everything I started to list became things that I wanted for me. Things I wanted to do, people I wanted to spend time with, yes, what I wanted to eat, <laughs> yes, that's important. Is that what we should be focused on? Is that what we should be focused on? We're going to look at the last week of Jesus' life. Not every moment of it we could, and we don't have time to fit all of that into these short four weeks, but on a few things that represented what his focus was on. He was a man on a mission, and nothing but nothing would stop him from his final destination, the cross. 
There's a phrase, it's a great phrase, it's, Dr. Luke writes it in Luke 9.51, where he records it this way, it says this, as the time approached for him, for Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He resolutely, we do not use the word resolute anymore, it's way too absolute. It's way too, it's, it's, there's no wiggle room with the word resolute. Jesus resolutely, now some translations, they, they do it a little bit differently, they say it was He was determined to go. He had his face set toward Jerusalem. They all, in the end, mean the same thing. From this moment in time, there was no turning back. He was on an absolute mission that would soon put him on a cross and in a tomb. And his determination would ultimately set up this epic battle with Satan, which Jesus, of course, emerged victoriously from just three days later as the tomb was found to be empty. Sorry for the Easter spoiler alert. My bad. I know. I, I could have held that up for a couple weeks, but I, I didn't. Luke uses nearly half of his gospel to tell the story of from that moment where Jesus resolutely looks toward Jerusalem and the cross. Half of his gospel on what's called the travel narrative. And here's what's really exciting. This is a story that I will get to share with you later on in the summer as we as the body of Christ go through the book of Luke all together. And so we'll come back to it later. But right now, we're going to look at the very last week, the very end of this trip, if you will, the travel narrative, the final week of his life and his physical ministry here on earth. So many things happened. The details of this week are found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're going to have to skip around just a little bit to include elements of each of these events from each perspective. But it all began with something that was brand spanking new. In the three years of Jesus' ministry, this had never happened before. He had never been greeted in this way. Now, as a kid, I always thought this story took place entering Jerusalem, but it doesn't. It actually took place outside of Jerusalem, likely, in one of the little suburbs just outside of Jerusalem. Some of you might be familiar with the story. Jesus sent two of his disciples out to go and borrow that donkey, that famous, famous donkey for him. Jesus knew what was ahead. No one else did as they were approaching Jerusalem. So we'll start in Luke 19, verse 36. It says, as he, Jesus, went along the road, they spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, see, he's not in Jerusalem yet, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. And then those famous words, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, that's Luke's perspective. John tells us why. Why has this random group of people all assembled? How did they know that Jesus was coming? This wasn't just a spontaneous thing. It was somewhat organized and planned. Why? What happened? Why did so many people come to greet Jesus? Well, John 12, some of the same things Luke records. The next day, a great crowd had come together for the festival. Ah, the Passover feast is in town. That's why everyone's there. And they heard Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took the famous palm branches, Palm Sunday, and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. That's a key sentence. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey. He sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid. Daughter of Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. First, his disciples, they did not understand this. John's reflecting. Remember, he writes this much later on in life, and he's like, oh, we didn't get it in that moment. But when Jesus was resurrected, when Jesus ascended into heaven, then when he was glorified, we realized that these things had been done about or written about him and that these things had to be done to him. He didn't cause them. 
They had to be done to him. But then he tells us why. Why were these people there? Now, the crowd that was there, verse 17, with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead. Well, that crowd had continued to tell everyone that Jesus was raising people from the dead. That's kind of a big deal. And many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, that's why they were there to meet him. You see, the crowd had come to see the man who could raise the dead. I would have went too. He did what? How long was he there? I need to see this guy. Jesus had a following, yes, but this large crowd gathered to see these powers of Jesus, these rumors of his incredible power. They came to see the show. They wanted to know what's next, because if this guy had the power to do this, what else could he do? They were in desperate need of a Messiah, of a deliverer, and if this man truly had that kind of power, surely he's the guy for the job, right? He's got to be something special, and if he is, we want to be on the front end of that. (laughs) We don't want to play catch-up. We want to be there from the get-go. We want to be on his team. Who wouldn't, right? However, as you know, many of you, that this entrance wasn't all that it seemed to be. You see, as the rumors spread that Jesus was the Messiah, they had hoped they'd begin to believe that he was coming to fulfill other prophecies, which he was, just not in the way they thought. The famous prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, usually we talk about it at Christmas. For unto us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government, and the peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Here's the problem. The people just focused on two words in that famous prophecy, the word government and the word kingdom. So they welcomed Jesus as king. They are shouting, Hosanna, save us. They are calling him the blessed king of Israel, pronouncing him to be king already. But somehow they missed all the other descriptive terms that Isaiah used about the Messiah, Because this wasn't the way a conquering king would come into town. A conquering king would come into on a mighty horse, a stallion probably, a white stallion to take things over by choosing that colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is subtly sharing with them that he's not the king on a war horse coming in to overthrow the political and the religious leaders of the day. Instead, he is a prince of peace. He is riding that colt coming to free them from an even greater bondage, that of sin and death. And you know what? The people then, just like people today, don't realize that is their greatest need. Now, this kind of parade could hardly go unnoticed. We are not sure whether the religious leaders were lying in the streets with everyone else or if they heard the commotion to come out and see what was going on. But from their perspective, this display was wholly and completely unacceptable, right? From the religious and government standpoint, a gathering of this size would begin to attract some attention from the Romans. And the crowd announcing that this, in fact, was their new king would have forced the religious leaders to answer some questions from Rome that they really didn't want to answer. So their strategy, let's go out and talk to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, um, I need you to rebuke your disciples. They want Jesus, in essence, to tell his fans to shut up, 
That's really all they want. Jesus famously responds with a very short sentence. His options were as follows. He could have said, you know what, guys, you're kind of right. We really don't want Rome on this. Hey, everybody, thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Good night, everybody. Go ahead home. He could have done that. He could have looked at those religious leaders and said, no. Does anybody love that commercial? No, 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 no. I love that commercial. Okay. He could have done that. I'm not going to do it. Get over it. But he didn't do that. Instead, he dropped those famous, famous words, if they keep quiet, then the rocks will cry out. Now, we might not view that phrase meaning as much as what it really did to those that heard it. The religious leaders would have realized the full and complete impact of that very short statement that Jesus made. Because the first thing Jesus was saying was this, the crowd, well, you see, guys, the crowd is right. That's who I am am. I am the king, and I have come to save them, and I am worthy of every bit of praise they're giving me. Yes, Jesus said that. But then he goes even further. He goes, hey, guys, here's the thing. If I did tell everybody to be quiet, if you somehow figure out a way to get them to be quiet, it really doesn't matter because the rocks themselves will cry out. They won't have a choice. And you'll notice in the scriptures, it's dead silent after that. The Pharisees are kind of left with nothing. They just lost big time. They just got shut down. They don't have the popular vote to force Jesus to do anything, and they don't have the power to make him do anything, and so they're kind of left just to stand by and watch it all unfold. You know why they were so angry at that point. They'd kind of just been told off in a very polite way. But what's really weird is the way this scene ends. Because the next thing that's recorded, seemingly as if it's right after this event, as Jesus officially makes his way toward Jerusalem, the crowds fade away, and Jesus enters this gap between the cities. He's headed down the hill that overlooks the city, and Jesus begins to weep. Luke records his exact words, Luke 19, verse 41. As he, Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, Jesus was deeply troubled for a number of reasons, and they're all expressed in his words. What had become of this great city was a tragedy. This city was to be a city of peace. This city has existed for so, so, so long. I was listening this last week. Some of you are familiar with the, the old ancient king priest named Melchizedek that met Abraham out in the wilderness. Well, Abraham met this king of this place that was actually Jerusalem back then. That's how long this place has been around. The location, the current location of this city was chosen intentionally as the capital of Israel by David. Why? To bring peace between the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, and the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul's tribe. It was intentional. Unfortunately, as you know, peace has never truly been realized in that region because even today, Jerusalem is still contentious. It still continues to be a city full of conflict and division. Jesus weeps for the people. Some of the people he just saw, he knows that in just a few days, 
they're going to be shouting something quite different at him as they yell, crucify. But his tears go even further in his omniscience, his ability to see all things. He's revealing that this city, Jerusalem, will be completely destroyed by the Romans. The city will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed, torn down, countless lives lost. Why? Well, because they did not recognize the time of God's coming, Jesus as who he was, the Messiah. And within just 40 years, the city of Jerusalem will not exist as they know it. Now, I want you to put yourselves in the disciples' shoes and think about this for a moment. This had to be a very strange sight because as the crowds were cheering, the Pharisees just got completely slammed. This is the best day ever as a disciple because you're with the guy everybody's cheering for. We've arrived, they're thinking. And now our leader is crying? What's going on with that? He's telling us that this great city is going to be completely destroyed? How's that possible? If he's the one in charge, if we're coming in to take over, or so they thought, what is Jesus talking about? Well, in the morning, this morning, the very beginning, I opened with this idea, telling you that Jesus was on a mission, an absolute mission. And here's some valuable insight into that mission and Jesus' decision-making throughout the week. After the events of every day in the final week of Jesus' life, except for Thursday night, he left Jerusalem. He traveled to a town nearby called Bethany. Why? Why did he waste all that time? Surely there was a holiday in somewhere in Jerusalem he could have stayed. And by now, surely there was finally room for Jesus in the inn, right? See what we did there? Okay, finally, there was somewhere for him to stay but that wasn't it. He was on a mission, and so as a result, he had to expertly plan out every single detail of that mission. I know I've fallen into this, especially as a kid, studying the stories of Jesus. It kind of seems like Jesus is just this wandering, traveling pastor, just kind of goes to wherever the wind blows, across the sea, back across the sea, over to this city, over to that village, like there's no real plan Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus intentionally and expertly planned out every single detail of his entire ministry, including the last week of his life. Every night, Jesus would retreat from the big city to the small town. Why? Quite simple. It wasn't safe in the big city. He could have been attacked by any number of people in any number of ways, even potentially murdered in such a way that would have prevented him from getting to his ultimate goal, his ultimate destination, the cross. And as we'll see mentioned many times throughout these texts, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are constantly looking for ways to try to kill him. So paying someone off under the cover of darkness would have been very, very easy. And if you know the full story, you know that's exactly how it went down, wasn't it? They paid someone off and under the cover of darkness, they sought Jesus, but not until he permitted them to. Not until he stuck around so they could find him. The next event that we're going to talk about in this series is, is recorded the next day as Jesus goes back into town and he goes to the temple. Now, this is the second time he's done this. Don't get the stories confused. He did this at the very beginning of his ministry as well. Keep in mind, Jesus has already told the Pharisees to get lost. The people are already claiming that he is the king and they want him to take the throne right now today. And he's in opposition to the religious leaders. He's in opposition to Rome. They're starting to take notice of him and the crowds that are following him. So he goes into his temple, his house, his father's house, a great place. Matthew 21, verse 10 begins this way. It says, as he entered Jerusalem that day, the town was abuzz. It's a big town. There's an extra 100,000 people plus there. 
for the Passover. Who is this? What is he doing? Why is he here? Is he really the Messiah? This is a direct threat to everyone in power. So on this day, Jesus enters the temple courts, and this is a famous scene where he drives out those that were buying and selling. He overturns the tables and things. No whip this time. That was just the first event. He flips the benches of those selling doves. He says, as it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Mark adds these little details. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. They've been looking for ways many times. This group, maybe for the first time. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. You know what the real truth was? The crowd wasn't the only ones amazed at his teaching. The religious leaders were amazed at his teachings. And of course they were. These were the teachings of God himself. And if you think about it from their perspective, they've studied these teachings their entire life. And now what's happening? Those teachings are coming to life. They're no longer just words on a page. There's a reality before them that they were not prepared to handle. Luke adds this in 19 verse 47. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the leaders among them, were trying to kill him. Yet they couldn't find a way to do it. Because all the people hung on his words. They just couldn't find the right time and the right place to take him out. Remember, every night he secretly snuck away to hiding so they couldn't find him. They had to find another way. They had to find some way to get close to him, someone that was close to him that was willing to turn, in which they ultimately did. Matthew even records for us this, that Jesus wasn't just teaching Matthew, later on in that chapter, verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting at the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, and they were indignant. Why are these children saying these things, they asked him, Jesus? Do you hear what they're saying? Do you hear what these people are saying to you? And Jesus says, well, yeah, I hear it. And then he throws it back at him. He says, well, now, have you ever read. Please don't read that with a sarcastic tone. It's not. Jesus isn't being sarcastic at all. He knows that they have read it, and he's just reminding them of what the scriptures actually say. From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. The religious leaders just got called out again. Jesus, you can't let these children praise you this way. Who do you think you are? And Jesus responds, well, guys, you might not have heard this said before. You probably have read this, though. Let me remind you. Psalm 8, verse 2 says this. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established your stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and avenger. (laughs) Hey, guys, God alone established this praise. And once again, the kids, well, the kids can't help it. They're just responding. They're doing what is right. They are doing what is good. And Jesus is receiving the praise of the people as he heals the sick. The children are worshiping God. The religious leaders all want to stop. Why? Because it's out of their control. They can't do anything about it. It threatens their grip on the people and on power. Not that Jesus was wrong. It just affected them personally. And Jesus, as we know, was so offended by what was going on, he got rid of everything. He made a mess of the whole room. People being robbed of their monies offended him. People profiting off of the sacrifices that God required was offending him. The religious leaders are fuming in the background. They try to stop him, but if they did in that moment, then it certainly would have caused a riot, which then would have brought in the heavy sword of Rome, and they did not want to deal with that, so they waited. 
in this moment. In this moment. It appears as if Jesus has it all. It seems like he's kind of winning. But this threat to the temple, to their power, even to King Herod, and ultimately to the Romans is slowly growing, and it must be stopped. So what does Jesus do? Well, Mark tells us. Chapter 11, verse 19, he gets out of town. He protects himself yet again, gets back to Bethany. But this time as he leaves, he shares some information with his disciples. He's shared it before, but he's going to share it again in a new way. He's going to tell them that he is going to die soon. John is the one that records this conversation, chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. Can you imagine how troubled his soul probably was? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. No, it was for this reason that I came for this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then that great voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it sounded like thunder. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Remember, John is commentating way after the event. Oh, I get it. Now lifted up the cross, I understand. The crowd spoke up. We have heard the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of man. Jesus doesn't directly answer that question. He says, you're only going to have the light with you, aka the son of man, me, with you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. And we're going to leave it there for this week. I want you to sense the tension building on every front imaginable. Since the tension in Jesus, he knows this is his destiny, if you will. He chose this path, and he knows it's about to come upon him. Think of it from the disciples' perspective. One minute, everyone's cheering. The next minute, your leader is crying. The next minute, everyone's praising. He's healing. He's going crazy in the temple. Then you hear rumors that they're trying to kill him. You leave town every night to hide so you don't get murdered. What is going on in their life during these last few days? Think of it from the religious leader's perspective. How can we possibly get rid of this guy? He's really not causing trouble. He's teaching truth. He's answering all of our questions, as we'll talk about in the weeks to come. And he answers them so well that we have no defense. We have no rebuttal for anything he says. So we got to get rid of him. This isn't working. He's better than us. He's going to replace us. And actually, the reality is he came to just fulfill everything they've been teaching And they could have easily all come alongside of him and joined him in this ministry. And it would have been incredible. You have the tension from Herod, the king, if you will. You have the tension on the Roman side. Everybody's starting to wonder what's going on with this man. And you have us sitting here in 2021 with a world around us in chaos. (laughs) A year ago, we no longer met. The church got closed got allowed us to continue to meet 
online. You won't believe how many people, when I tell them, oh, you guys back at church yet? Well, uh, we went back May 31st last year. (laughs) Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah, because God allowed us to. And he protected us, and he watched over us, and he allowed us to make the right decisions. And we knew that God would lead those to be here that could be here, and those that couldn't, they would join us from other places, and they've started to make their way back now. We're so blessed. And so as we remember this story, as we consider this last week of Jesus' life, this week in your life, consider where you fit into this story. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you questioning what he's doing in your life? Do you have something you're determined to do? Maybe this season you can be determined to tell somebody about Jesus. Determined. Nothing's going to stop me from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them this this Easter season as his death and resurrection will be remembered here in just a couple weeks. And if you're watching today, whether you're in-house or online, and you've never, ever made that decision for Christ, and this story that we're sharing with you is for you, He made these decisions. He planned out his life, and he ultimately went to the cross for you specifically. Don't ever make this impersonal. It was for you that he died. Father God, as we celebrate this season each and every time we gather, it's easy to look at this story and and just say, hey, you know what? I've heard that before. There's nothing new here. Father, this is what's happened. If we, any of us ever come to the point where that's our heart, then we've lost what it really means. We don't understand the full impact of this story on our individual life and how this event, this world-changing, eternity-changing, and personally, my life-changing event, how important it is, every detail. And as we seek to share it with others, Father, let our words be simple. Let our explanations be clear and let your love flow through us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name this morning. Amen.